it seems to me that over the years, one of the things that we um, come to know is that communication is a very uh, tricky business. Um, I have a strong feeling that uh, something happened at the Tower of Babel that involved more than the confusion of language. Not only are we confused linguistically, even though we may share the same uh, the same language, we may have the same tongue in, in common. We very often do not say what we really mean. Our words connote far more than we intend them to, uh, to denote. We confuse people. We make a mess out of the communication process. Um, there's been a great deal of... Uh, Research and a lot of pop psychology written on body language and other ways that we communicate, and you're familiar with this, with this sort of thing. The real problem, I think, is that we don't understand that communication is a matter of the heart. As Jesus put it, the good man or woman out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things. The evil man or woman out of the evil treasure of the heart brings forth evil things. Communication is a matter of the heart. Now, it's that principle that we've been trying to get across in the last few weeks. That's why we haven't talked much about techniques of evangelism, because we can know all the ways and still miss the whole point. Evangelism is essentially a communication of the heart of God, and unless we have his heart, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to give witness to his love. We may know the words but we're not really communicating the love of Christ to people. And we started out talking about uh, witness coming out of worship. When we know God, we can make him known. And it's real. It's authentic. People know it. We, uh, We know who God is, and we understand the way he thinks, and we have his heart and his compassion, and we begin to communicate that. So making him known grows out of knowing him well. And then, uh, secondly, we talked about worship coming out of uh, wisdom. That is a lifestyle of godly living. Not only do we want a lifestyle of evangelism, we want an evangelism that grows out of a proper lifestyle. We are a holy people, as both the Old Testament and New Testament put it, because God is holy. And we want people to see the holiness of God in our lives. And it's not that we do it all perfectly, but it's that aspiration, it's the intent of our heart to live out his character that draws people to the Lord. Now, I thought about, uh, I thought this morning about speaking on on witness out of the whale, because we're going to look at uh, Jonah, but I uh, couldn't do that to you. Uh, but I did have to be alliterative. Uh, it's uh, wisdom out of a worldview. But really what I want to get across is that that witness out of a worldview. That witness grows out of seeing people the way God sees them. Once we have his perspective on the world, once we understand how God sees people, then we can can begin to effectively communicate his his passion and his compassion for people. Now let's uh, turn to the book of Jonah, which is about three-fourths of the way through my Bible. Uh, it's one of those very small prophets, one of the twelve, the minor prophets. Uh, if you can find uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah is the next book, and uh, then Ezekiel and Daniel, and then the first of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and then Jonah. Um, 
we don't, uh, we don't know a great deal about Jonah. There, there, there's one reference to this man. We, we assume it's the same prophet in uh, 2 Kings 14. Um, according to, to Kings, Jonah was, uh, was uh, a resident of the city of Gath-Hefer, which would put him up in the, north, in the north country, in the country of Israel. We know that he was a prophet during the time of Jeroboam II, who was not a good king. He was very much like his namesake, Jer- uh, Jeroboam I, who brought idol worship into, uh, into Israel, set up the two rival sanctuaries at Bethel and at Dan, and uh, who was responsible for the spiritual decline of, of the northern kingdom, as much as any individual can be responsible for others' uh, defection. But Jeroboam II was very much like Jeroboam I, uh, an ungodly man. Israel was very prosperous during this time. They uh, were extending their their borders to the east. They annexed the country of uh, Syria during this time. They they had imperialistic ambitions, but they had no evangelistic outlook. They they were no longer concerned with fulfilling the the Abrahamic uh, promise, that of being a blessing to the nations of, of the world. They wanted property. They wanted uh, people. They wanted possessions. They were centered on things rather than fulfilling the the promise. Um, A few months ago, I was reading a story about Lewis and Clark that I was unaware of. When they came across the northern part of Idaho, they, uh, as you know, met the Coeur d'Alene Indians. And these Indians had come in contact with French trappers who had preceded Lewis and Clark some of whom apparently were Christians. And uh, the Indians came to, they, they found out about the white man's book, as they described it, the book about God, and they asked Lewis and Clark to send help to them. Uh, one of the men, I've forgotten which, I think it was Lewis, was a Christian. And when he got back to Kansas City, he told the Board of Missions of the Methodist Church that the Indians in northern Idaho were, they wanted to hear the gospel. But it was years, tens of 20, 30 years before anyone ever responded to that, uh, to that plea. And as you know, the, those that preceded the, the, the first missionaries to Idaho were uh, trappers and miners and fur traders and others who, uh, who really did not come to bring the gospel. They, come to make, they came to make money. And essentially, this was, uh, this was Israel's outlook in the middle of the 8th century. And unfortunately... Uh, their spiritual leadership had some of the same outlook. Uh, even Jonah had that same coldness of heart. As one of my friends uh, described him, his heart was as cold as a bathroom floor at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Let's uh, begin reading the story with, with chapter 1, Jonah 1.1. 1, 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because there, not its, as so many of our translations put it, their wickedness, that is, the wickedness of the people, has come up before me. Nineveh was a great city. It was one of the imperial cities of the Assyrian Empire. Some of the people we know about from history, like Sargon II and Tiglath-Pileser people, they're just names to us, but they were, they were great uh, men built their palaces there. Nineveh was a city of of parks and vast libraries, and they had a a large botanical garden there and a zoo. 
in a population about the size of uh, Boise. There were about 120,000 people living in the city, which is a very large city in antiquity. We're used to the large cities having millions of people. 100,000 people was a very large city at that time. Uh, it was also a very wicked city. And as the text puts it, it's not that the city was wicked. It's the people that were wicked. There's no such thing as an evil city. It's people that make, make cities wicked. The reason cities like uh, San Francisco and, and Seattle and New York City and Boise are, are wicked in part or in, in total is because of the people. And whenever people are wicked, the atmosphere grows very cold. Um, as Jesus put it, because of the wickedness of many, the love of many will grow cold. That's what happens in big cities. That's why big cities are impersonal. It's because of the, the, the evil in people's hearts, in all of our hearts, it produces a coldness and indifference to human need. So that what you have is hurt. And you look at a city like San Francisco, and we've all been reading about San Francisco because of the Super Bowl, and they tell us that 40% of the single males in, in the city of San Francisco are gay. And we say, oh, that is terrible. But what we don't realize is the hurt and the pain that, that underlies that kind of wickedness. And it's that that God saw. It's not that he didn't write the city off because it was wicked, and neither should we. He sent a prophet to the people. But Jonah had other plans, as you know. Verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now, Jonah knew that you really can't run away from the Lord uh, by the middle of the 8th century and even before. Of course, they knew that they didn't think of God as, as localized in one place. Jonah didn't think he could get away from God like you get away from radio waves. You know, the farther you, away you get from the source, the less intense and powerful the waves become. He knew better than that. This is an idiom for getting away from the will of God. He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. And so he ran down to Joppa, which was a Gentile city at that point, a Phoenician city. And he took passage on a Phoenician merchant ship to go to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is one of those places that it's very hard to pin down. We don't know exactly where it is. I had a professor once who told me that that he thought that Tarshish was was used like our word Timbuktu. Uh, it was a place, just as Timbuktu is a place, as you know, in Central Africa, but it was used for the end of the world. And I think he's right. Tarshish was a place, probably on the west coast of Spain or on the west coast of Africa, but uh, it, it signified uh, Timbuktu, just getting as far away from God as he could. Joppa was already a thousand miles away from, from Nineveh, and he, he wanted to go as far as he could. Get away from these people. And we say, why? Well, uh, it's because Jonah was a racist. He didn't like Ninevites. They were Assyrians, and the Assyrians were Israel's enemies. They were a very cruel, ruthless people. They were... They were Gentiles, dirty Gentiles. They had filthy mouths. They told dirty jokes. They drank too much. They partied all the time. They were the kind of people you don't want to be around. They swapped wives. They did all of the things that people do who don't know God. And, and Jonah didn't want to go. They weren't his kind of people. He didn't love people like that. 
because they were hard to be around. They were difficult. So uh, he took passage on this big merchant ship. The word that's used for the, the ship suggests some kind of a deck. And the only sort of ships that had decks in those days were very large. Uh, the Phoenicians ran these merchant ships all over the, the civilized world then, and usually they had anywhere from 70 to 80 sailors on board who uh, rode this thing when the winds uh, uh, abated. So there were a large number of sailors on, on board sh- the ship. Now, you know what sailors are like. You know how rasty they are. And this is what, what uh, Jonah had to contend with. So he went down inside the hold of the ship and he went to sleep because he didn't want to have anything to do with these Phoenicians. As you know, the Lord sent a great wave on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. You never think of people like this as being religious folks, but they are. They are. They're, all of us are religious. We're incurably religious. You, you, you can't get God out of your thoughts. We try to. And, and the more ungodly people uh, are, the more they, they try to push God out of their thoughts, but, but they can't. It's like C.S. Lewis's story of the time that he and, and one of his colleagues were walking across the, the campus of Cambridge University and, and uh, they were talking about Christianity and his friend said, rum thing. He said, rum thing, you know. It does seem, after all, that the whole thing is true. I can't get away from it. It must be true. Um, I've told this story a number of times and I'm always reluctant to tell, tell a story like this again, but it so vividly illustrates this principle. I'm, I'm going inflict, to inflict you with it again. The time that I got in the car with this student from, uh, from Berkeley bearded philosophy student and and uh, asked him if he had any interest in spiritual things. I did so because a friend of mine who seemed to have an uncanny, uh, who seemed to have the uncanny ability to perceive when someone was ready to respond to the gospel uh, had been, uh, we'd been in his home and I, I asked Mike how he came to have that sort of sensitivity and he, I said, how do you know when people are ready to listen to the gospel? And he said, it's easy, I ask them. And uh, I thought, well, all right, next person I ask, uh, next person I meet, I'll ask. And it happened to be this, uh, this student from Berkeley, of all people. And I asked him if he had any interest in spiritual things. And he said, he said, friend, I've been looking for God all my life. Can you tell me how to know God? I've never forgotten that. Uh, people try to cover up that hunger for God, but it's there. It's there. They can't get away from it. Beneath all the denial and what seems to be doubt is this nagging certainty that God is really there. And they have, they, they, they have to account in some way to him for what they are and what they, what they do. And uh, that's what Jonah discovered. These were, underneath the surface, very religious men. There are no atheists in foxholes. There are no atheists in sinking ships. And they all began to cry out to their God. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of, the, of Jonah, says that he was snoring, and that's how they found him. 
The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us, uh, of us and will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And you know the story. They, they, they eventually tossed him overboard. It's interesting. Jonah is not a coward. He was willing to accept the guilt and the responsibility for his evasion of God's will. And uh, eventually they, they did put him overboard. Uh, it, the, the thing that always strikes me as I read through this, this section of Jonah is how compassionate these men were. They had more compassion for Jonah than Jonah had for 120,000 people that he was willing to, to, to write off. It's reminiscent of our Lord's words that sometimes the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light. Some of our non-Christian friends have more social uh, consciousness, more sensitivity to people around us, more concern for unwed mothers or for uh, the, the, the innocent victims of nuclear war than we Christians have. We're inclined to think of these great disasters as the judgments of God which people richly deserve. We want God to judge sinners rather than save them. Very often people in the world are far more perceptive about this sort of thing than we are. And, and you see that in this case. These, these guys were rowing like crazy trying to save Jonah of all things. And he was the cause of their distress. But in the end, uh, they had to uh, put him overboard. They took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared Yahweh. They feared the Lord of, of Israel. That's, as you know, the Old Testament word for worship. And they offered a sacrifice to him and made vows to him. The uh, Septuagint again says that these were uh, 70. There were 70 sailors in the boat representing the 70 nations of the world, and they threw their 70 idols, all the idols of all the, representing all the nations of the world into the sea. That's not true, but that's at least a 3rd century B.C. interpretation of this passage. They got the point that these mariners represented the unbelieving Gentile world, those that, that should not have been interested in spiritual things but were. And Jonah unwittingly was responsible for the salvation of all the men in the boat. See, they turned to God despite his, his disobedience. He would never have thought these people were interested in spiritual things. Never. But they were. Now, you know what happened. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. And then what follows in chapter 2 is his prayer, which you're familiar with. We'll not comment upon it, except I want to say that I, I, a lot of people have trouble with Jonah because of the fish and the gourd and all the other things. And they, they, the, the attitude they take toward this book is that it could not be historical. These things could not have happened. This is an allegory. Well, I think it is an allegory, but it's an allegory based upon historical fact. Second Kings 14 says that Jonah was a real prophet. He lived in real time. And, and uh, Jesus, in referring back to this incident, to the book, took, took this as fact, as history, he took it very seriously. And I really can take no lesser view, no lower view of inspiration of Scripture than, than our Lord did. Though I have my problems. I don't understand how a fish could swallow a man and Holding for three days and, and three nights. I, 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 I have a problem with that. 
But I, I just have to take it at face value. God prepared a fish. Doesn't, actually, it's not a whale, as you know. It's the word for a sea monster in Hebrew. And apparently it was a special creation to contain Jonah. And I'm convinced that Jonah died. Jesus, uh, in Matthew 13, looks back on the story of Jonah. And he says, Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites. And just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the grave three days and three nights. I think Jonah died and was raised from the dead. And that was the sign to Nineveh. This dead man came back to life and began to preach. If I can believe that Jesus died and was raised from the dead, it's no problem for me to believe that Jonah died and was raised from the dead. Now, in his prayer... He simply uh, uh, goes back to the place of worship. As he's about to die, he offers up his life to God, indicates his willingness to respond to the revelation that's been given to him. And then we're told in verse 10, after the three days and three nights, the Lord commanded the fish and had vomited Jonah onto the dry land, which I suppose just goes to show that you can't keep a good man down. Then, chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Oh, I love that phrase, don't you? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He never gives up on us. Uh, As a matter of fact, this story not only tells of God's love for the Ninevites, but it tells of God's love for his his servant, Jonah. God's greatest desire is to restore and to rebuild and to put us back into a place of, of service again. We, we ultimately are never, we're never ultimately disqualified. Once repentance takes place, then God can use us. It doesn't make any difference how far we've gone or what we've done. He can restore, not just the second time, but a third and a fourth time and a fifth time, an infinite number of times. Certainly, if Jesus expects us to forgive one another 490 times, or in effect an infinite number of times, is it not true that he'll forgive us an infinite number of times? So the word came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed. Didn't even stop to press his pants. He just walked to Nineveh. And he began to preach. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It was actually a complex, uh, sort of a metroplex, of Nineveh plus four large suburbs, which was about 25 miles uh, across at its uh, at the widest part of the of this uh, metropolis of Nineveh. It took three days to go all through it, assuming that it would take. Uh, that's about 30 miles. It, In those days, you would expect to walk about 30 miles in three days. That's the size of the city. Jonah started into the city going a a day's journey. So he came into the middle of the the city, into Times Square, into Nineveh itself, and he began to preach. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. There's five words in Hebrew. He told them what they already knew. You, You don't need to tell people basically that they are that, that they've they're not living up to God's standards they're not even living up to their own standards they know that 
They know that what they're doing is worthy of judgment. Uh, I've mentioned before that sequence, and that was the week that was, TW3. I'll never be able to get out of my mind. David Frost was sitting behind a, a card table. Have I told that? Carolyn says, I, I, I'm going to have to write a little note on all my illustrations so that I'll remember when I tell them. But Frost was sitting behind the card table as man comes to the card. And behind him were two doors. One, one had a sign, hell, and one had a sign, heaven. And uh, the man came to the table and he said, which way do I go? And Frost, who is a Christian, you know, and who from time to time would insert little aspects of the gospel into that program. If you ever watched it, you could see it turn up every once in a while. man came to the, the table and says, which way do I go? And uh, Frost said, you know. And the man said, oh, no, come on, tell me, which way do I go? Frost said, you know. And he said, no, tell me, which way do I go? And Frost said, you know. And he crumpled up his hat and walked through the door to hell. And uh, they know, we know. We know, see. So he didn't have to belabor the fact. He simply announced it. Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And the Ninevites believe God, just like that. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, all uh, socioeconomic classes, from the king to the, to the peasants. They, they declared a fast. And they put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Uh, that's true to the culture of that day. The historians of that period, period tell us that when they mourned, they shaved their horses. So that, that in inflicting this, these signs of humiliation on their horses, they were simply symbolizing their own intent to humble themselves. So they repented. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them destruction. The destruction he had threatened. Uh, he had threatened. Some of our translations say he repented, and that, that bothers people because they don't understand how God can repent. But the word simply is a reflection of the way we see God acting. It appears from our standpoint that God changes his mind. When these people repented, then God did, in a sense, in the way that we look at God, change his mind, and, and he relented. He, he didn't judge them. You, you would think Jonah would be greatly pleased since his ministry was so well received, but he wasn't. Verse, uh, chapter 4, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was still at home? And now we see what it is that motivated his flight. He, he says, that's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
And when he gets all depressed, bummed out, we would say today, because God didn't uh, nuke the Ninevites. <laughs> Commies, you know, in, they're enemies. They're, they deserve judgment. They're wicked people. They're, they, they are arrayed against God's people. They nuke them, waste them. And he was, he was mad because God wouldn't, uh, wouldn't judge him. I just knew it. I knew that's the kind of God you were. I knew if they repented that you'd relent. I knew it. That's why I didn't want to go. Because I wanted to see them go up in a cloud of atomic dust. God says, do you, do you have any right to be angry? Good question. Is there anything righteous about that, about that attitude? Is that the right way to look at people, as we would say? Is that the right thing to do? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. He went up on the rim rock just to the east of, of Nineveh, and he sat up there in that blazing uh, Mesopotamian sun, looked down on the city to see if God wouldn't change his mind and destroy them after all. And he made himself a shelter, sat in his shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a vine. And made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Which, by the way, is the same word that's translated in my text, calamity, back in verse uh, 2. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now he says, we're told that he made this gourd plant, this castor bean, grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his calamity, his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Then grew up almost overnight. It, it was a castor bean. It's called a kiki bean in, in Hebrew and, and in the ancient world. still grows there today and does grow very fast. You, we, we had one of those things in our backyard one day, and I swear I thought our kids had brought home a, a magic bean or something because it grew about six inches a day. They just sprout up. You can almost watch them grow. But this was supernatural growth because this thing grew more than one foot. A day. It grew up overnight, covered, uh, covered Jonah's uh, little booth and eased his discomfort. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is your attitude right toward the vine? Is it right for you to be angry about the vine? I do, Jonah said. I, I'm angry enough to die. You killed my, my bean plant. <laughs> but the Lord said, you have been concerned about the vine. This is a very interesting word. It's a word that means to pour out. It's used for compassion and pity. In, in the Old Testament. You poured out your heart, we would say, to the vine. Oh, you loved that vine? Because it comforted you. You, you, were, you were merciful. You were concerned about the vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left 
and many cattle as well. Should I not have compassion? Should I not pour out my heart to this people? 120,000 people, he says, who don't know their right hand from their left. Our idiom today would, would be those who don't know up from down. They don't know in from out. They don't know anything. They're ignorant. They don't know about God. You loved your bean plant. He said, I love people. Ignorant people. Reminds us of Jesus' words from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See? They don't understand. Now, the, 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 the question that I have to ask myself and ask you is, is what's, what's on her heart? What, what is it that, that upsets us? Um, what, how would you feel if at 4.15... This afternoon, the tube on your television set blew. <laughs> right at the kickoff, you know, just pow! And, and your, your neighbors are all gone. They've gone someplace else. <laughs> Boy, you talk about anxiety. Upset. You ever had things like that happen? When I live in California, we used to have a dichondra lawn. You ever have a dichondra lawn? They are terrible. You can't, you can't even walk on them without wrecking the lawn. And uh, for some reason, all the kids used to come over to our house and play on our front yard, play football. You know, and they'd kick coals in the, in the ground so they could uh, practice their place kicking. And I'd go out and look at my lawn, and it was just awful. Terrible looking. I had the worst looking lawn in the block. And Carolyn used to remind me, do you love grass or do you love kids? The question is, where is her heart? What's her heart on? What, what preoccupies us? Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And as you know, in the New Testament, heart is mind. It's what you think about. What you treasure is what you think about. What preoccupies you? What's on your mind? What's on my mind today? I'll tell you what's on God's mind is people. He loves people. And even people that we think of as, as wicked, evil, godless people. He loves them. And what we've got to do as God's men and women is acquire the heart of God for people. And my, my question is, how do you do that? How do you have his, his passion to reach the world? How do you have his compassion for people? Because like Jonah, my heart's uh, very cold, sometimes very indifferent to the needs of, of people around me. And uh, not only people that I consider my, my enemies, <clears throat> people that are, that are opposing the gospel or opposing me or the enemies of the United States um, militarily, but uh, people that, we, that are around us all the time that we tend to not even see. They're, they're people that Joyce Langendorf describes as landscape people. They just blend into the background. The clerks who wait on us at the store. We tend, we don't even look at them because we're preoccupied with other things. But yet, those people very often are very, very needy. We don't know what's going on in their heart. It may be that their husband has just walked out on them and, and, and uh, un, totally unexpectedly. 
Or they may have just discovered that they have breast cancer or they've discovered that one of their children is sick or they're struggling with, uh, with, uh, with some other problem in their, in their family. And we walk right by them and, and never even think about that. Or the salesmen that we, that we do business with. Or the people who, know, who annoy me most are telephone salesmen. I never buy anything on the telephone, never, ever, and it just annoys me. They always call right at 6 o'clock, too, when you're sitting down at dinner, and it just, it just really does bother me. And my, my tendency is to be very curt and, and just to say, thank you, I'm not interested, and hang up. But that's a person on the other end of that line. And frankly, the only people that would resort to that sort of salesmanship have to be desperate. And no, I mean that. Ser- oh, I'm not kidding. I mean that seriously. Very often, there are people that are trying to make a. Uh, they have to ha- have a second source of income, and so they're spending their evening while you're home with your family, enjoying them on the telephone, getting rebuff after rebuff. You have to be desperate to do that sort of thing. And our tendency is to just gloss right over that. You know, to be rude, unmannerly, discourteous to people that God loves. See. Now, somehow, we've got to gain his perceptive, or his perception of people, his perspective on the world, his worldview, his love and compassion for people. And my question is, how do you do that? How do you do that? The, the more I thought about the book of Jonah, the, the, the more it came clear to me that right in the book itself, we have an answer. God tells us how we begin to grow uh, in in this this area of, of our life, the first there are really two steps in the book. Jonah complied, and then Jonah learned from God to have God's compassion. Now, the the reason I know Jonah learned is because, as far as we know, he wrote the book, so that he must have gotten the message. Although the book ends rather abruptly. Since uh, Jonah was a prophet, there's no reason not to believe that he wrote the book and he got the message, he got the point. Compliance and then learning from God is compassion. And I, I think that's where it begins, with just obedience. Even though we may be cold toward people, even though we, we really are not, we don't see them as God sees them yet, if we respond to the Great Commission and we make ourselves available, then we've taken the first step. And that's where we have to begin. You say, Lord, I, I have to confess there are many people in this world that I don't like. They annoy me. They're, they're not my kind of people. But by your grace, I'll make myself available to you to announce the good news. That's where it begins. Something begins to happen to you, I think, when, when you take that first step. You, you discover that God does have a way of getting you to the right place at the right time so that you can say something to someone who has a need. And you begin to discover that, that God gives you the, the ability to say the right thing. Remember the passage we quoted two weeks ago, God's word or Isaiah's word about himself. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned to know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. I've mentioned before that I, I have two questions that I ask people. Often you don't even have to ask questions because as, as you begin to, if you make yourself available, you begin to, God will get you to people that have needs. But, but 
sometimes you have to ask the right kind of question. And I have two that I ask that I find very helpful. Number one, I, I ask people, what's your philosophy of life? You know, you can take a, a non-Christian friend out to lunch and chat with them for a while and then ask that question. It's the easiest question, question in the world to ask. You don't, you don't have to even try to respond or answer. Just, just, just ask them, what, what's your philosophy of life? What's your worldview? What, what do you think is the purpose of life? Why do you do what you do? What, what, on what basis do you think that, that what you're doing is right? Is there any ultimate purpose for life? Uh, do you think anybody's minding the store? Is there a God that's controlling the universe? Just ask questions and listen. And I've discovered that very often people, in the first place, everybody has a worldview. They may not have a theology or a philosophy, but they have a worldview. They just don't know they do. Uh, like the man who didn't know what he believed until he heard what he had to say, as, as people begin to talk about their, their philosophy of life, they begin to realize all along that they have been operating on the basis of certain principles. I've had people say, in fact, I had one man say to me after he talked for a while, you know, he, he said, that's really pretty crass now that I think about it, isn't it? Because he did have a very materialistic way of, of living life. Just let people talk. And nine times out of ten, after they've had their opportunity to talk, they will say to you, what's your worldview? Well, what's your philosophy of life? And you'll have an opportunity to tell them how you came to know the Lord. Another question is simply to ask them if they have any interest in spiritual things. And listen to them. Give them a chance to talk. See, while you listen to them, your heart can stop. It'll stop racing and you can kind of calm down a little bit and get yourself under control. I'm just I'm saying take some first steps. Just just make yourself available. That's all. And take some first steps. Don't worry about the feelings of compassion. These are first steps. And then the second step, I think, is to begin to acquire a love for people by learning from God. The Lord took his prophet under his under his wing and he began to teach him gently and lovingly how to love people the way the way he loved people. And God will do that for us. And as you spend time getting to know the Lord, when you carve out time in your day and you sit down and you begin to read the scriptures and see how God looks at people, our, our minds and our hearts begin to change. We be, we be, there is a, an unconscious, supernatural process at work. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and begins to align our thinking with God's thinking. That's what Paul means when he says... Uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, we, because we have the scriptures, we have the mind of Christ. That's the way Christ thinks. That's his worldview on things. And as you begin to read the scriptures and ponder them and think about them and meditate upon them, God begins to change your mind and your heart. And you begin to think like he thinks. And then secondly, begin to pray and ask God to give you his outlook on others. Paul said that it is by means of the Spirit that we do put to death the deeds of the flesh. The process is supernatural. It is mysterious. I don't understand it fully. But I know that as we pray and ask God to make the truth real in our hearts, he begins to do it. That's why in, the, in, the, in, the, in Paul's writings, in his letters, he teaches and then he prays that we will appropriate the teaching that he has just given. 
That's the biblical theory of knowledge. That's how you come to know. It's not merely an intellectual process. It's by reading the words and then asking for God that, that God will make those words real and applicable in your life. And he will do it. Not immediately, but in time. He begins to conform us to his character so that we begin to look at people as he looks at them. And then as you go throughout uh, the world, you're not, you know, you're not thinking about what you can acquire from people. You're looking for opportunities to bless and enrich the lives of others. Let me ask you a question. You, you, you ever wonder why God chose a loser like Jonah to send to Nineveh? Well, that's because that's all he's got. <laughs> We're just like Jonah. Unsure of ourselves, uncertain of our gifts, frightened, cold. And God takes someone like that and begins to change them and, and give us the kind, of, the kind of, of perspective, the way of looking at the world that he has on our world. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we, we're just grateful that the word of the Lord comes to us uh, many, many times. You, you never give up on us. We are your children, and you're committed to helping us grow up to full manhood and womanhood. You want us to, to take our place as mature sons and uh, to have a, an effect upon our world. Free us, Lord, from our tendency to lock in on possessions and things and to permit uh, uh, our own possessions to preoccupy us or the acquisition of other things to be the main thing rather than learning to see people as you see them. Help us to understand that people are the most precious, the most valuable commodity upon the face of the earth. And help us to love them as, as you love them, all kinds. So it's not necessarily our kind. Help us to associate with the lowly. Help us to be willing to, to reach out in need to people that are distasteful to us, very much unlike us. And uh, we ask in faith, believing that you can change us, and give us that kind of love for those in our world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.